liked him. So just so you know where to find it. Um, before we get started, so Rifki had begged me um, to do a Fabrengen, and she didn't want me to double up um, on the Fabrengen and also this Sicha um, from the Tut Alt campaign. So, um, but I, I convinced her that I thought it was a good idea that we should learn this Sicha together. But just to start off with um, um, a drop Fabrengen style over here before I jump into the Sicha. So I had an anatomy professor, um, an incredible anatomy professor when I was a student at Berkeley. And I think she was probably close to 90 when she was the professor. And she was, I remember she was teaching us about the epithelial cells lining the digestive tract. And she said that these cells regenerate approximately every few days. And after she said that, and she finished teaching that, and she was telling us the lifespan of these cells, she said, and yeah, you know, whenever people ask me how old I am, I usually say, you know, I guess it depends which part of me you're talking about, you know, and it was a funny joke. Um, and I think about that, which she said, and it's funny because lately people ask me a lot. I mean, I get this question a lot since I didn't grow up in the Chabad world, I didn't grow up from, and I, I get the question, you know, like what inspired you? Like what exactly made you decide to become from? And I, and I really, my answer is really, I guess it depends which part of me you're talking about. So if you wanna know about the, maybe the part of me that gets really excited about bringing the, the Gashmias into the Ruchnias, so that's the Sicha from Shavuos, why the Yidin slept in by Matan Taira and why we have to stay awake all night as a Tikkun. If you want to know why I get all inspired about how Hashem doesn't give you anything you can't handle, so that's the Sicha of Parsha Shlach. We just had it this past week about how the Miraglim, the lesson that we learned is that really Hashem doesn't give you anything you can't handle. If Hashem tells you you can do it, then you got this, you can do it, you are empowered to do it. And if you want to know what got me obsessed with doing mitzvahs like crazy, then I will tell you the answer is the Sicha that we're about to learn. So. That's my introduction to this Sicha. Um, I don't know if it will do the same for you, but I'll try. And really, um, what we get out of this Sicha, at least what I get out of the Sicha, everybody's going to get something else, is that we see how the obsession, the passion for mitzvahs is equivalent to the obsession and the passion for Mashiach. And this is something, one of the points that I really took home. Now, I actually learned the Sicha with Rabbi Paltiel in Machum Chana back, I don't know how many years ago. And I wrote, I reached out to him about it recently when I was preparing for this. And I, I asked him about it, you know, like if he teaches it every year. And he said, no, he only did this like for a couple of years. I was very lucky. I was very fortunate to be a part of the, one of the classes that he taught. He did this for a full year teaching all of these Devar Malchus and actually extra ones that weren't included in the booklet, but also on the topic of the Rambam and Mashiach. So this was in the beginning of my journey of my personal um, connection to Chabad and becoming from. And so this is like what really has given me a lot of Kayach and strength, I think in my own Shlichus and in my own journey is um, having had this as the backbone of where I'm coming from here. So. I'm going to now, we're going to start reading inside. And this Sicha is the second Sicha, actually, where we did a little bit out of order um, just because I wasn't available the week. But so, whatever. Bracha. We're back to the Sicha Bracha. Yeah. Uh -huh. Your introduction is incredible. And I think we're going to have to have some other classes to learn those other Sichas that inspired you <laughs> in, in all the other aspects. Wow. Thank you for sharing. I'll just throw in that because I had already planned to start learning the Sicha like um, over a month ago, and then I didn't end up teaching it till now. So I've been like reviewing it a lot. And my kids, 
um, every time they hear the word Ari Miklat or Sicha or Rambam, something like that, they're like, oh, mommy, that's your Sicha, right? Like they connect it to me because they know how excited I am about it. And there was actually the, the Sicha for kids. I mean, the, the Fabrengen that they made for kids, the Mashiach Fabrengen. I don't know if anyone on here had any kids participating, but I think they had a game where they played and you had to come up with something related to Mashiach with different letters of the alphabet. And it was like ABCs. So for some reason, for the letter A, so my daughter screamed out Ari Miklat. <laughs> that was just thanks to this. Okay, so anyway. Um, all right, so here we go. <laughs> so this Sicha, which is the, the title that it's given, is called Nitzchiyas Havtachas HaGeula, which is the eternality of the promise of the Geula. And really what we, um, you know, that's really the theme is that how do we know um, that we can rely and trust on the promises that we have in Tyra that Mashiach is really gonna come? How can we know it's true? So this Sicha is really gonna drive the point home that it's um, something that absolutely must happen in a literal way, and it has to happen Bagashmias, and it it's not subject to, um, being rescinded, meaning even though we're promised this promise, it, it, we can't be taken back. This absolutely must happen. And we're going to find out from the Rebbe's words here why that is. It's very powerful. So Kasava Rambam. Oh, and by the way, if the first paragraph sounds like a broken record to you, I think that's a good thing. I think that um, every time when the Rebbe re-quotes almost verbatim the Rambam over and over and over again, I almost feel like it's that the, these words need to be familiar to us. Like we have to know them so well that it just becomes a part of us. So um, those of you who've been following, hopefully by now this sounds familiar to you. So Kasev Rambam Hilchas Malachim, the Rambam writes in Hilchas Malachim, we're learning Perik Yud Aleph. We kind of went out of order. So the last two sikhas that we learned were from Perik Yud Beis, the second Perik of, I mean, the second, the, the last Perik of the Rambam of the Laws of Kings. And this is the, the first one of the ones of Mashiach, the, the 11th chapter. He writes, that in the future, Mashiach is going to come and he's going to um, restore the Davidic dynasty to the, its previous time. And if a person doesn't believe in him or a person doesn't await his coming, not only is he denying all of the prophets, but he's also denying the Taira and Maisha Rabbeinu. And we know from the Pasuk in, Pasuk in Nitzavim, we have a promise that it says that very explicitly in Tyra, a time of the Gula is going to come and Hashem is going to ingather us from all the exiles, from all the corners of the earth, no matter how far we went, um, how, however far we are, Hashem is going to bring us back. And this is a very um, explicit proof in Tyra. These are the, this is the explicit reference to Mashiach in Tyra and Shabbat And this includes within it all of the words of the Nevi'im. And then we also have another proof for, for Mashiach in Chumash, which is in Parshas Bilam. Misham Niva Mishneya Mashiachim, and there we have a prophecy about two Mashiachs, the Mashiach Rishain Shuhu David Vukhub and Mashiach Akhrain Shuhaimbin Mibanov. We have the, the first Mashiach, which was David Hamelech, and then the final Mashiach, who's going to be a descendant of David. And then the Rebbe abbreviates what the Rambam says. Instead of quoting all the psukim here, the Rebbe says that the Rambam brings lots of psukim there to tell us about 
about which one is David and which one is Mashiach, and that gives us all this um, information about David and Mashiach and about the role of Mashiach. Next, and then the halacha after this, so the, the, the Parakir Aleph of Rambam has four halachas. So the first halacha had everything that we just said, but then there's a second halacha, which is a separate halacha, and it seems like a continuation. We had this question before. I think this was in the Sikha that Shifra did with us. So in a separate paragraph, the Rambam says that we have a mitzvah. There's also um, the, in the reference to Ari Miklat, which is about the cities of refuge that it says that when Hashem is going to broaden your borders, you need to add three additional cities of refuge. And this never happened in history. And Hashem doesn't command anything for nothing. So therefore, we know that um, Mashiach has to come. And, uh, you know, and, the Ram, and the, he reiterates that if you want to, you know, um, see more proofs, you know, the Nevi'im are absolutely packed with proofs from Mashiach, so we don't need to, you know, look any further. We don't need to elaborate on any more sources from the VM. So Ari Miklat, um, just to give a background, so for Ari Miklat, there were three Ari Miklat that were inside of Eretz Yisrael, three Ari Miklat on the other side of the Yardane, and then it says that there will be three more in the future when the borders of Eretz Yisrael will expand to include the lands of Kenik Nizivikan Maini, which really are a reference to the lands of Amain Mayav and Edoim, and then we're going to have to add three additional cities of refuge during that time. So the first question the Rebbe asks is, what is the need for the third proof? Um, in addition to the first proof that we have from Parshas Nitzavim, that Hashem is going to return us to the land, and also from Parshas Bilam, that tells us about the prophecies of two Mashiachs, what is added? Why do we need this third additional proof from Ari Miklat? We understand why we need the first two proofs. Because what's the Rambam's Kavanah? It's to provide... It's 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 to provide us um, information about the, the belief in the coming of Mashiach and in, in the Melech Mashiach, the King Mashiach. In addition to the obligation that every person has in general to believe in the concept of Geula, the time period of Geula, that in, in the future Hashem is going to redeem the Yidin. In addition to that, we also have to believe in the person, Mashiach, not just the time period of Mashiach. In And we have to, you know, also believe in all the details that the Rambam is, is dictating to us in the halachas of Mashiach. And if you look carefully at the way the Rambam phrases it, he says, and anyone who doesn't believe in him, referencing the person, Mashiach, it's not actually so explicit that you need to believe in the person Mashiach from the first proof, because we said the first proof 
really is a reference to Hashem doing everything. Hashem is the one that's going to return us. Hashem is going to be the one to bring us back. And only with the additional um, reference to Parshas in Parshas Bilam to the two Mashiachs, that's how we know David Mashiach explicitly that there is going to be a king that is going to be Mashiach, a person. And that's also one of the reasons he just says parenthetically, like we had from the previous Sicha, why he elaborates in the proof about um, the prophecy of Bilaam, and with many different verses that are explicit about this, about um, about these two Mashiachs, about what their persona is and, and what the identity of Mashiach is going to be. Because there were, we get hinted to a lot of details about what Mashiach is going to do and so on. And we're obligated to believe in this Mashiach the person Mashiach, like we explained before in the other Sicha. So in the first Sicha of the Devar Malchus, that's where we got all that information. so this whole section the Rebbe is explaining, and this we actually had in the last Sikha, but just to recap, that we can't, but we need both of the proofs, the first two proofs are a must. The first one is very explicit about a reference to Mashiach coming. Like we don't have to guess what it's about. We know that there's going to be a time of Mashiach. It's very clear in Tyre Shabbat. But the problem is that it doesn't mention the person Mashiach. So that's why we need the second proof from Bilam. But the problem with Bilam, the reason why that's not a good proof alone, we said, is because there it's not so explicit. You have to have Tyre Shabbat Peh in order to interpret these Pesukim to understand that we're actually referencing two Mashiachs, David and the final Mashiach. So therefore, it's not enough that you just have the one from Parshas Bilam because we need, because it does say, the Rambam says that it's explicit in Tyra. So in order for us to walk away knowing clearly that we have to believe in, in Mashiach because it's a proof in Tyra Shabiksav, we need both. We need the explicit reference and we also need the reference that tells us that Mashiach is not just a time period, but also a person. Aval Tzarech Bir so, okay, we get the first two proofs. So why do we need Ari Mikla? What's, what's the third proof for? And of course, also, we have an interesting point. Nothing is by accident. It's also put into its own separate halacha. It's its own separate paragraph. Like we have the first two proofs, and then we have a third one by itself. It should have been included with the other two. Like these are the, all the proofs that are in Tarish of Iksav telling us about Mashiach, the, very, the ones that are in the Chamisha Chumshe Torah. So why is it divided like two and one? What's that all about? We're up to um, Ois Bates. Venera Laimar, Shabaraya Zuma Ari Miklat, Yesh Chidush Ikri Lagabi Bates Raya Sarishonis. So it would seem to be that there must be some kind of fundamental 
thing going on with this third proof that we don't have in the other proofs, which is why the Rambam has to separate it out. The fact that the Taira gives a command when Hashem is going to broaden your boundaries, then we have to add these additional cities of refuge. And when Mashiach comes, we're going to add cities of refuge. We're going to add three additional ones to the six that are already in existence have already been in existence. So now, what is the, the, the difference here between the proof of Ari Miklat and the other two proofs that we already had? Is that now we have the Ari Miklat is a mitzvah in the Torah and Mashiach's coming is a condition for this mitzvah to be fulfilled. Meaning Mashiach has to come in order for this mitzvah to be fulfilled. So now we know that Mashiach is part of a mitzvah in Torah. It's a condition for a mitzvah. That even though the concept of Geula itself is explicit in Torah, and we know that belief in Mashiach is considered one of the fundamental principles of faith that all Jews have to believe in, that all Jews believe in. It's a, it's a main idea in Tyra. It's a fundamental concept. But if you are following um, Sefer HaMitzvah or you uh, help the child study for Chidon, you might be aware that out of the 613, there isn't one specific mitzvah that says you have to believe in Mashiach. It's not counted in the actual mitzvahs. We don't have an actual commandment that we have to believe in the Geula. So really, if it weren't for the fact that we had this proof from Ari Miklat, where we see that Mashiach is a condition for this mitzvah to be fulfilled, we this this is the the only indication that we this is this is now telling us that Mashiach is not just one of the fundamental principles of of the beliefs in Torah and so on, but it's actually connected to a mitzvah in the Torah. It's a detail of a mitzvah. So now this is where we get to learn what's special about a mitzvah, what's different about a mitzvah than any other part of Tyra. So the Rebbe is telling us that the fact that it now is a mitzvah, it's a part of a mitzvah in, a tar- in the Tyra, it gives it an additional strength. What kind of strength does it get? It gets the strength of what a mitzvah has. So what strength does a mitzvah have? So what's unique about a mitzvah? Mitzvahs are eternal. And they're not subject to change. We cannot add to them. We cannot subtract from them. And mitzvah, mitzvah, the actual translation of the word mitzvah means that tzivui means a commandment. And commandments were given to us forever. That they don't—they don't go away. There's no—they're um, not subject to change.
and also the Rambam writes in the laws of kings there, in continuation of the idea about Melech HaMashiach, that the Rambam goes on to say that mitzvahs are forever. We can't add to them. We can't subtract to them. We're not allowed to do that. And in fact, if a person does do that, what do they become? It says a person who tries to detract from a mitzvah or even tries to come up with a, um, an interpretation which um, is um, not in Tyra, um, that, or sorry, rather that, that takes the literal translation out, the literal meaning out of the Tyra, then that person is called like, uh, it's like a liar and a wicked person and a heretic, like all these bad things. That's what you call that kind of person who, who, who does that kind of thing, commitvas. So what's the conclusion that we get? So the fact that the whole concept of geula is tied to a mitzvah, specifically the mitzvah of Ari Miklat. So, and the fact that Ari Miklat is a mitzvah which is eternal because all mitzvahs are eternal. And like we said before, we can't, there can't be any change to a mitzvah. It's not possible. So therefore it's impossible that there could be any change to the promise of Mashiach himself coming because Mashiach is a part of this mitzvah. And now we can understand why it is that the Rambam uses this specific language when he mentions this. He says, that Hashem doesn't command us something for nothing. The word tziva, which means commandment, is alluding to the status of, of, of what now we're doing here in this separate halacha. His, his intention was to emphasize the kevan shazau inyan shal mitzvah. And since this is connected to a mitzvah, tziva hakadosh baruch hu, we're talking about Hashem's command. Now it's impossible that there could be any changes to it whatsoever. Hashem doesn't command us something for nothing. Now we're up to ice gimel. Even more when we, um, in, in relation to the promises that Hashem makes to a navi. This is an interesting point that the Rebbe is about to make. That we're, we're basically, we're trying to understand like what's special about a mitzvah compared to any other parts of Torah. Around the Rebbe is going to analyze um, the, the concept of nevuah and why a mitzvah is even more powerful in some ways than a nevuah. So what is that all about? Because with a nevuah, it's possible the concept of change could apply. For example, if a Navi gives a negative prophecy, it doesn't necessarily have to happen. It's possible that it could be taken back. Because, you know, Hashem is slow to anger and he's kind. He has abundant kindness for us. Or it could be that the people did tshuva and Hashem forgives them. So 
So it's also possible that if there was a private nevuah, even though it was a positive nevuah, but it was made in, um, between Hashem and the Navi and it wasn't publicized, then that could also um, become rescinded, so to speak, if, for example, the people sin. If there's sin, then then that nevuah might not actually need to come true. And it's also interesting because even when we have assurance that the, the nevuah of the navi really will come true, that we do have this idea that um, a positive nevuah um, which is which was decreed um, really can't be taken back if it's a positive nevuah. Like the Rambam writes in the Parish of Mishnayis, and so it's true that to a certain extent um, we could say that there are some nevuahs which we know that they have to happen. There's a certain assurance that we have. It's not because of the fact that the concept of Navua is not subject to change. It's because there's not going to be a change in actuality. That the whole reason we have this concept is to test whether the Navi is a true Navi or not. So it's not that the nevuah itself is not subject to change, but it's not going to change because we, we need it as a way to test the navi. Which is not the case with the nitzchias of Torah, which is eternal. And since it's above the, the even the concept of, of change, it's impossible for it to change. Just like Hashem himself doesn't change, mitzvahs can't change. And there's no, it's not even shayach whatsoever to say that there could be a change by Hashem. And same with Hashem's Torah. Which is Hashem's will and His wisdom. Which has it's not even shayach at all for the concept of change. that even though, yes, there are certain voices that are not subject to change, but still the concept of nevuah, there is the idea that it could change. The concept exists within nevuah that it's possible that something could happen which will change the outcome of the nevuah. Whereas with a mitzvah, nope, there's no such thing as change. It's not even possible. And the fact that Ari Miklet is part of a mitzvah means that it's that um, since Mashiach is part of the mitzvah of Ari Miklet. Now we know Mashiach is not subject to change. 
הרי הכלל שנתחס התיירה הוא בכל חלקי התיירה, ובפרט בחמישה חומשי תיירה, וכמו שכוסף הרמב״ם, שהחמישה חומשי תיירה אינם בטבעים לעולם, שכל הנכתב בתיירה, מיישה, הוא נצחי וקיים לעולם. That really, there's, uh, you know, it's not just the mitzvahs that are eternal, the truth is that every single word of Tyra has an eternality to it, there's something eternal about every single word in Tyra. The truth is that, you know, you could argue that, like, every part of Tyra is eternal. So, like, what exactly is this big chiddish that it's part of a mitzvah? Really? Isn't all of Tyra eternal? So, what's so special? Like, what's the difference between any part of Tyra? For example, stories in Tyra or things that happened, like events of the past. And an actual mitzvah, because there's a level of Tyro that's entirely that's entirely eternal. So, like, what's the what's the difference? That there's actually a fundamental difference between what does it mean that it's eternal, the parts of the Tyra that are stories or or just um, you know um, you know any other narrative that we have in Tyra versus an actual mitzvah in Tyra. There is a difference. What's the difference? Beshar chalkei ha-tayra, efshar, she'inyan ha-nitzchiyah shabahem yizkayim v'loi kapshutai, ela rak b'taychanam ha-ruchni. Ve'al derech divrei ha-yamim v'ha-sipurim she'b'tayra she'b'ksav, she'ha-nitzchiyah shabahem hi be'chachmais u'playim ha-nirmazim behem v'loi b'inyanim kapshuta, she'harei heim v'ari shabahavar. So what's the main difference? The main difference is that it's possible, you could say, the way you could interpret in general, other parts of Tyra, any other parts of Tyra, is that perhaps that we don't have to understand it literally because it's maybe it's spiritual. It's not necessarily has to be taken on a on a on a shot level. You could understand it on different levels. There's different under there's different layers. Or for for example, it's a, it could be talking about an event that happened and it happened in the past. It already happened. So it's something that it's not eternal. It's not happening right now. It happened already. Masha'in King. So the difference between any other part of Tyra and the mitzvahs that are in Tyra is that the mitzvahs are not subject to change at all. They're eternal. Okay, I'm going I'm to actually skip the brackets. I'm going to go to... If you're following along in the link that I sent out, it's on page 11 at the bottom of the first column. So it's um, still in Oistalid right before the end. This is the, what, what's the big novelty that, that the whole um, promise of the Geula is connected to the mitzvah of Ari Miklat. So we have, it has now within it because it's connected to a mitzvah. So it has the promise and the assurance that it will not change. There's two things that we get from the fact that it's a mitzvah. It has to happen. It has to happen literally. And number two, there's, it's not shaykh at all for there to be anything. Oh, wait, I have. Okay. Um, and now we're up to Ice Hay. 
So now we can understand the reason why the Rambam adds uh, the proof of Ari Miklat that he tells us that Hashem doesn't command something for nothing to teach us something really important. He's not just coming to bring us an additional proof from Tara Shabbat like we need another proof. Like two isn't good enough, we need a third. No. It's not that we need one from, from the from the about Melech HaMashiach. So what's interesting is that we're not just getting an additional proof. We're getting an additional strength of what it means that um, the concept, the Rambam kind of put it in like, in a way that it's like a person who doesn't believe in him. What's the, what's the problem if a person doesn't believe in Mashiach's coming? The Rambam now is going to analyze exactly um, what are you over if, if you're, if you don't believe that Mashiach is coming. Um, and there's different levels and there's different layers of this. And it's really interesting because when you analyze these layers, you see um, how special, how important a mitzvah is. So what are the layers? So there's one layer that it's um, a person who might deny Mashiach's coming. So they're denying, they're denying Tyra, which is one level of Kfira, I guess you could say. But there's another whole level. If a person doesn't believe that Mashiach is coming, they're not just denying what's written in Tyra and in the, in the prophets and so on and Maishu Rabbeinu, but they're also denying a mitzvah. They're detracting from a mitzvah. They're subtracting from a mitzvah because we know from the mitzvah of Ari Mikla that Mashiach has to come because it's a condition for the mitzvah. In order for us to fulfill the mitzvah completely, to have the three additional cities, which we never yet had, Mashiach has to come. So therefore, Mashiach has to come because Mashiach is part of a mitzvah. So if a person doesn't believe in Mashiach, now they're subtracting from a mitzvah. And that's a different level of violation over here. So now we understand why the Rambam had to put it in a separate halacha, because he wasn't just trying to bring an additional proof for us so that we would know that, yes, Mashiach uh, is part of Tyra. That wasn't it. It wasn't just that. It was only, it was also to show us that Mashiach is part of a mitzvah. But now here's a really good question. What, who cares? Like, okay, so um, what exactly does it add? Um, the fact that if he's already a Kaifer and Tyra, now what's now, like, what does it mean that he's also, um, Detracting from a mitzvah in Tyra. So 
שאף שהבטחנו על הגאולה, חל בזה השינוי ונסבות לו הבטחה זו, מפני יחיד, וכיוצא בזה, שלכאורה אי אפשר לומר עליו שכויפר בדבר משה רבינו, שהרי התורה היא בעליו, שהכוונה בזה שכויפר בדבר המפרש בתורה שבכסב, כנ"ל בתחילת השיחה, שהרי אין כויפר בהבטחה הכסובה בתורה, אלא שגם אם, שגם על הבטחה כזו שייך עניין החרטה, וצריך עניין אם יש לי דין כיפר בתאירה שבעל פה. So what's interesting is that the Rebbe points out that it's actually possible that a person doesn't have to believe literally that everything in, that's, that's stated in Torah is going to happen. He's not necessarily a koifer. He could maybe, he could believe that it's going to happen, but in a non-literal way, or that what it's describing is non-literal. Um, he can believe in it, like in a more ruchniistic way, like we said before. But when it comes to Avalkevin Jagu'ula, he prat vegeder b'mitzvah satara, but now the fact that it's part of a mitzvah in Torah, asher hi mitzvah aymedes la'aylam ula'aylam yolamim, shezeh machriach shi'i afshar li'ay shinu yichas v'shalom v'havtachas ha'gu'ula, harei ba'amrei hefach mizeh, yeish alav din koifer b'tayra, ki afshamaymin shehatsivui ve'im yarchi v'goymer v'yasavta goymer, hu min shamaim, harei ba'amrei shehizbatol prat zeh d'ha'mitzvah, kvar bat v'tayra zu, harei hu koifer b'tayra. So the fact that it's now a part of a mitzvah necessitates that it has to happen. It has to be literal. Like we said, it can't just be something which is non-literal. And if he denies it, he's denying Torah. ‫שלא <laughs> So we can't take the literal meaning of the mitzvahs out of their, uh, we're not allowed to take the meaning of mitzvahs out of their literal translation, the literal understanding, the fact that they literally have to happen. So if a person wants to say that, you know, okay, it doesn't mean that it's really going to happen. It's just, you know, a metaphor or it's just baruchnis or something like that. That is not acceptable because the fact that it's part of a mitzvah means it has to be literal. Aval mitzad zeh shagu'ula hi prat v'geder b'mitzvah satayra az ba'amrei shagu'ula loi tia kapshutai harehu maiti devarim shal mitzvahs mipshutan. If a person thinks that it's non-literal, now they're taking mitzvah out of its literal meaning. V'chalalava din v'harei zevadai badai v'rasha v'apikaris. So now the person turns into this category of a rasha, an api, a heretic, and so on. And now we're up to Oisvav. V'hini b'derech zoi yeish levar oi diuk b'lashon harambam shabaharaya b'parshas bilam oimar oimar af b'parshas bilam nemar v'sham niba b'shnei hamashichim shalachayra ina muvan tam hadgasha zu v'sham niba shenem shenemra b'derech nevua. So it's very interesting. The Rebbe is now going to say, so we now we know what the advantage of a mitzvah is. A mitzvah has a certain advantage because it's eternal. It can't change. We have a promise that we can hold on to. Now we can be assured. We can rest assured that Mashiach has to come because it's connected to a mitzvah. And a mitzvah is forever. It's literal. It has to happen and it can't change. So that's a strong thing to hold on to. But now we're going back to the concept of the concept of nevuah and why Bilam's nevuah is so important also. 
And what is so special about a Navua? What's the strength that a Navua has? Because there is a strength of a Navua. And this is why the Rambam emphasizes by saying in the way he describes a Navua, he says, Vesham Niba. He makes sure to say, it doesn't, he didn't say that it, Vesham Oimer. He doesn't say there in the part about Bilam, this is what it says. He says there, he makes a prophecy and he emphasizes the prophetic part. Why does he do that? Um, Skipping the, the the brackets, going to the next part. That there's an additional chumra, um, an additional violation. Also, if a person doesn't believe in Mashiach, they're violating the words of a navi. Now, what does that mean? That they're violating the words of a navi. Even though the words of Taira are more, um, they're more severe than the words of the, the Taira. But there is one way that we see that the words of Nevi'im are actually more important in some ways than words of Taira. The punishment that a, a person receives for doing a sin depends on what kind of punishment it was. There's different categories. So we, you know, we know there's different punishments for different um, Averis that a person might do. Now I'm on page 13 at the top, which is not the case. What's the punishment for a person who doesn't listen to the words of a Navi? It doesn't matter what exactly he did that he violated any words of a Navi. The, the punishment for not listening to the words of a Navi is universal. It's death penalty. So even though we know that there's a, a, there's a certain strength that the words of Tyra have over the words of the Navi, but when it comes to people, there's actually um, something that the words of Navua have over the words of Tyre themselves. Because Hashem is communicating to the person. So there's a certain um, weight that the that the words of a navi have because it's a communication directly from um, Hashem to the person. That therefore, when a person hears a navua from a navi, when a person hears a, a, a navua, a, a prophecy from a prophet, it's as if he's hearing it directly from Hashem. So it doesn't matter what the Navi tells him to do. If he doesn't listen to what the Navi says, it's Chayev Misa. The punishment is the strictest punishment. So we can understand that there's this. So there is something that the words of the Navim have over other words of Torah. 
So he's emphasizing by saying Visham Niba when he said in that in that halacha that there he makes a prophecy. He's reminding us it's a prophecy. So if you're not going to listen to the words of the Navi, don't forget this is serious because the violation for not listening to the words of a Navi is is um, misa. So the Rebbe says that by bringing all three of these proofs, we have three strengths that we get from these proofs, three unique things that we're, we're getting from each one that teach us about what it means to believe in Mashiach, but also what it means if we don't believe in Mashiach, like what, what, what kind of violation are we having here? So the first is that we're, we're, denying, um, we're denying a promise which is written in the Torah, which has, which has the, the strength of the, the, the written part of Torah. And then you have the words of the Nevuah, of the Navi. So that's another whole level that we just spoke about, the, the, the strength of the words of Nevuah over in general words of the Torah. And then lastly, the mitzvah of Ari Miklat gives us the strength of a mitzvah. It's a promise that we know has to happen because of what a mitzvah means. Like we said, it's not subject to change. And therefore, anyone who doesn't believe in Mashiach, and just to say it again, the Rebbe is bringing it up, that anyone who doesn't believe in Mashiach, therefore, he's denying Nevuah and he's denying a mitzvah. And a mitzvah is eternal. Now we're up to Oizayin. And really, that's like kind of the ending of this um, point where we're understanding why is the mitzvah of Ari Miklat mentioned? Why do we need it? And why is it in a third paragraph? The last ois is like a little extra, something special, where we, some of you might be wondering, so why do we, what's, what, why connect it to Ari Miklat? I definitely had this question. I'm wondering, let's see, of all the mitzvahs that we want to connect Mashiach's coming to, let's think about Ari Miklat. What is it about? It's about someone who murdered accidentally or even on purpose has an opportunity to run away to a safe city to um, hide, so to speak, to, to be safe from the Goyal Hadam, the avenger of the blood who's trying to kill him. So what does this have to do with Mashiach exactly? Why are we so excited? Hooray, Ari Miklat. I'm so excited, Ari Miklat. Um, it's kind of <laughs> leaves you with some questions here, okay? This is not the only sikha where the Rebbe addresses this. So anyone who had as many questions as I had when I was learning this, I definitely recommend um, look reading into the other sikhas. Um, there's a sikha also from Shavuos, the Tayyar Chadasha Me'iti Teitzik sikha from Tashin Dan Aleph also addresses this. But here the Rebbe brings a point home. So now we're, we understand how special it is that Mashiach is tied to a mitzvah. It's very special because now we know it has to happen. It's a promise that it has to happen and it's not subject to change. Why on earth is it connected to the mitzvah of Ari Miklat exactly? In Yanam Shal Ari Miklat Papashtus Hu, what is Ari Miklat about? Literally, Ari Miklat is a Makim Shmira Vahagana Migoyal Hadam. It's a place of protection and, and guarding from the Avenger of the Blood. She Biyaisa Adam Shaharag Bishagai Gam Bizadin Beir Miklat Lai Yuchal Lingaya Bailara. 
if a person killed someone by accident or on purpose even, then he goes to a city of refuge and nothing bad can happen there. It's like a safe zone. And just like we have the idea of miklat, of refuge in a place, we also have this idea in time. And this is that time. What's that time? So the Rambam references it and the end of the laws of kings, which we actually read in um, the other sikhis. So you might remember this from the other sikhis if you were following along. He references that time. What's that time? It's the time. That there's not going to be any war, no, any hunger, no war, no jealousy, and no competition. There's going to be protection for all of us from anything which is undesirable. From the time of Gullus. And the Yidden are going to dwell securely in their land. And also in the Ruchnius. The Prat al Pi Hayidua, Shahainyan Daari Miklat, Myra al Haklita Mehayita Hara. And this is uh, the, the, the part here that we take away that specifically what's known that the idea of Are Miklat is also the idea of protection, so to speak, from the Yetahara. Shanikra Gayal Hadam. The Yetahara is called the blood vendor. And what is it that um, protects us from the Yetzahara? It's words of Tyra, the words of Tyra. And just like the, the actual city of refuge acts as a kapara, not just um, a place of protection, but also atonement for the one who, for the person who killed. Cain who gam beruchnius, so too also beruchnius. Shahirig nefesh meramis al kol meisa avera. When a person, uh, the, the fact that a person killed is also an allusion to any avera that a person might do. Shal yada paygim enashay that causes a, a blemish in his neshama. Shadivrei tyra shalaymid paylim klita the kabara lenafshay, and the tyra that he learns provides a protection and a cleansing for his neshama. And this is the connection between this mitzvah and Mashiach's coming. Because then what's going to happen when Mashiach comes, we're going to, we're going to be, we're going to complete our protection and our kapara, our cleansing of, of all of the Yidin. That's what's going to happen. mamish. And that's how the Rebbe concludes. And that's the end of the Sicha and kept it under an hour somehow, miraculously. Any questions, comments, anything to say? <laughs> Thank you so much, Bracha. I really appreciate it. Now, Sorry, I can't open oh. camera. <laughs> yeah. The Hi. first time I, I saw you was on the Kinos, and since then I, I had an opportunity to go into the Shiurim, um, like here and there, whenever it was like a good, a good time by us. And I really, really appreciate you. We're always there with your camera open. And <laughs> wow. Thank you, Nechami. Really, really appreciate it. By the way, if you have two minutes to tell your story that you said on Chafbe Shvat, it was really touching. <laughs> I don't know, you said a story about, um, I don't remember the details, I just, told that story already on Chafbe Shvat. 
about your connection, the way that you came closer? Like a um, beginning story, something with your, the shluchim in your, in your uh, community, your, your shluchim in your, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember the details now. And I, um, if you know what I'm talking about, I guess you do. <laughs> Well, it could be a lot of different things. So um, I don't know exactly which which part you were talking about. I um, I will say, I, I just shared this um, at a, a different bringing the other night that someone, when someone did ask me the question, which I said at the beginning of this whole bringing, you know, when someone asked me like, oh, why did you become, like, what made you become from? So I said, there's like a lot of answers. It sort of depends on which part of me you're talking about. <laughs> But since you just mentioned the, the other shluchim, I will mention a few things about other shluchim that inspired me. Is um, I, I I remember that when I when I was a student in Berkeley and I heard that there was this Rebetzin there in Berkeley and at the time I she had nine children now she has ten Kanainahara, but I remember that someone told me I should go meet her and I said okay fine I'll go meet her. And I was just like trying to picture a woman that had nine children. And from the way I grew up from um, a family of two, Kanainahara, um, it was like, I don't know. I just imagine someone kind of like rolling over in a wheelchair or something like, I don't know, like kind of bedridden. That was like my imagination of what I was expecting to find. I, I don't know. It just didn't really like, I couldn't even picture it actually. It was, it was too far off. Like I never heard of such a thing. Um, so when I went and knocked on the door and when, um, the person answered the door, I said, hi, is your mother home? And she looked at me and she said, like, kind of funny, like, I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't lived with my mother for like 30 years. And I said, oh, okay, well, I must have the wrong, I must have the wrong address. Never mind." And I walked away and she said, who are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for Mrs. Ferris. And she said, I'm Mrs. Ferris. And I like fell over. I just remember being like floored, like just even <laughs> looking at her, like, how did she do that? You know, like, it was so shocking to me especially growing, I mean, like I had a pretty secular background. I was in Berkeley as a student studying pre-med, becoming a, a surgeon, at least I thought I was at that time. So it was like unheard of, like this idea um, of having a big family and, you know, I don't know, just <laughs> everything. So when I saw her, like just seeing her made such an impression on me. And of course her daughters, um, who I'm still very close with today, they're just so, so special. Um, I was so blessed, Hashem put me in the right place at the right time that I was able to meet girls my age. So when I was in college, their oldest daughter was the same age as me, like in seminary. And they had another daughter in seminary and a couple in high school. And it was just so amazing for me to see that it wasn't just like, like, I don't know, the only Orthodox uh, images that I had in my mind from my entire childhood were basically from Fiddler on the Roof. So it was just so like shocking for me to see like real live people living in this century, you know, living Jewish lives like that. They didn't seem like old fashioned or outdated. They seemed like very you know, with the times and, you know, living in the world, but it was just really like really special. So yeah, I did a lot of learning and I got inspired in a lot of different ways. And I learned a lot of Tanya and Sichais and all these other things. But honestly, just just seeing role models was like very, very special for me. Um, in addition, there were other Shulchan, there were other um, Anash families that were living in Berkeley, the Welton family um, and the Feld family made a really big impression on me. So when I got to see them, it was just like, it was just really, really special. Um, and, and that, you know, it was like one thing led to the next to the next. Once I started learning, I just got addicted. So as you can tell from this day, um, I don't know, I just a little bit obsessed with learning and I need it. It's like oxygen for me. Like if I go a certain amount of time without it, it's like, I don't know, I'm like just not inspired. So I need it.